This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this Resolution Foundation uh, event. Now, the first thing to say is you just get a massive prize because all these short-termist people have wandered off to listen to the Prime Minister resigning. But that is not the big news today because there are longer-term trends going on uh, in Britain and that's what we should all be focused on. And I know that's what you're going to stay focused on. You're not going to be browsing Twitter during the course of this event where we discuss long-term trends in what's happened to worker power and firm power when it comes to the labour market over the course of the last four decades. And we're going to be doing that as part of uh, the Economy 2030 Inquiry, this big project that we and our colleagues at the Centre for Economic Performance at LSE are doing, uh, funded by the Nuffield Foundation. And we've touched on lots of things in that debate in terms of how you grow the economy and how you uh, can have a look at what would make a difference when it comes to who benefits from the economy. But we haven't yet looked at how we determine who shares in that at the level of the firm or at the level of um, uh, labour and capital. So that is what we're going to be focused on today. What's happened to worker power? What's happened to employer power? Not in the product market, but in the labour market. And what does that mean for outcomes in terms of levels of wages and the distribution of those wages amongst different kinds of workers? As always, there's a big report out today on the Inquiry website. You can look at authored by team from the Resolution Foundation and from uh, LSE, and thank you to all of them for their work. And to kick us off, uh, Hannah Slaughter, who's a senior economist at the Foundation and one of the authors of the report, is going to give you a quick summary of that, um, reminding you of some of the long-term trends you probably are aware of, but then digging under that about some of the ones you're probably not, and also touching on why this all matters so much. And then you're going to hear from Steve Machen, who is the director of the Centre of Economic Performance, the, um, who has been working on this issue for um, some time. Uh, and he's going to give you his take on that issue. And then you're going to hear from Antonia Bantz, who's the Head of Campaigns and Communications at the TUC, which does some worker powering uh, when it gets the chance. The, uh, so that is the plan um, today. As always, you can put your questions in on uh, Slido. It's hashtag worker power. The, um, uh, and we'll have some polls up there as well as we go. So that is the plan uh, this morning. Hannah, what is in the report? How are the workers doing with the power? <laughs> Thanks, Dawson. Um, and yeah, big thanks to um, obviously Nuffield Foundation for funding this, but also to my co-authors from CEP. It's been a great um, team effort. Um, so when I say worker power, um, something like this probably comes to mind. Um, we've had lots of strikes recently, more, um, more planned, um, and the cost of living crisis has led to a, a resurgence in workers kind of exercising their power in, in a very visible way. Um, but in this report, we are going to take a bit of a step back um, and look at worker power and the balance of that with employer power and what does that mean um, for wages. So the first chart, this is not going to be a very surprising chart for most people. Um, we all know that there has been a decline in um, the share of workers who are part of a union since the 1980s. Um, and this chart also makes clear that it's very much public sector workers who are more likely to be union members um, and um, at the moment um, public sector workers are nearly four times more likely to um, be, um, be union members than those in the private sector. Um, but what has driven this and in the report we look at um, we look at things from a workplace perspective. Um, so um, we kind of 
you know tackle a few uh, theories so it's we find that it's it's not that workplaces with unions are just closing more quickly and that's why there are fewer workplaces with unions it's also not that workplaces are actively de-recognizing unions so they used to have one and now they don't um, instead it's um, essentially that um, newer workplaces are just not having a union to begin with. Um, so here on this chart, you can see that um, kind of younger firms, firms that are less than 10 years old, um, really uh, led the decline in the share of workplaces with the union, particularly uh, during the 1980s. Um, um, although that was also a decline um, among firms uh, that were older than that. Um, but the story isn't just about the decline of unions or of collective bargaining, we also show that the bargaining that does take place has become less centralised. So on the left hand side here, you can see how the UK compared to other countries in 1980 in terms of both the um, share of workers whose pay was set by a union. Um, so that's a slightly different measure that that can include people who aren't themselves members, but their colleagues are and they bargain on their behalf. Um, and the level of bargaining, so how centralised it is. And in the 1980s, Bargaining was more likely to be at a kind of industry level, so quite broad-based. Whereas on the right-hand side, you can see that as well as coverage, union coverage declining, bargaining has got less centralised. So it's more likely to be workers and um, managers bargaining at an individual workplace. Um, so the nature of bargaining, not just its level, has has changed as well. So as bargaining has got less collective um, that means that individual forms of worker power have got more important um, and so one um, one thing that we think about is workers outside options um, so that's basically how easy it is for them to change jobs um, if they're not happy with their pay or, or conditions at their current employer um, and in some senses workers should be in quite a good position there's low unemployment high levels of vacancies but we show that actually in some respects it might be getting more difficult for workers to switch jobs so here on this chart you can see um, that the share of training that workers are getting that will prepare them for a job that they might do in the future has gone down and actually that's gone down as a share of training overall as well as just a share of workers um, so that means that workers are, get, are having less power um, finding it more difficult to move jobs and having less power individually not just collectively and in the report we also show that um, it might be the case that leaving your job might just be getting less attractive anyway because there's more insecure work out there. Um, there's kind of, if, if you start a new job, you don't get protection from unfair dismissal for the first two years and leaving for unemployment is getting much less attractive as unemployment benefits fall relative to um, average earnings. So as worker power has um, declined, the minimum wage has stepped in to protect the lowest earners. Um, so in a sense, this is the state stepping in um, and substituting for worker power. So this is just showing you the real terms level of the minimum wage since it was introduced in 1999. Um, but that's not, you know, that that's really good for, for living standards of the very lowest earners, but it's not a substitute for unions. Firstly, because um, it, it only protects the very lowest earners, uh, not those uh, slightly further up the earnings distribution. And it's actually kind of more uh, mid earners who were more likely to be union members um, in the first place. Um, um, but also because it doesn't cover kind of wider conditions. But looking at worker power is only covering half the story. So we also think about what's happening on the firm side. 
so first of all, this chart is just showing you that as collective bargaining, um, including unionisation, has declined, um, the share of workplaces where wages are set directly by management has increased. So it's not that collective bargaining has been replaced by um, kind of individual bargaining or pay review bodies and things like that. It's that managers are just stepping in and setting wages directly for their workers. Um, and we show in the report that um, lots of workplaces are um, stepping up kind of HR management practices that seek to get the views of workers in other ways. Um, but actually, that's not a substitute for unions either, because um, it's actually unionised workplaces that are more likely to have, for example, kind of committees where workers can feed in their views. Um, and, and so that's kind of um, not, um, not a substitute for unions either. But the extent to which managers are actually able to set wages depends on kind of wider labour market conditions. Um, so one way that we can think about that is um, how dominated local labour markets, so kind of thinking about a, a particular sector in a, in a local area, how dominated they are by big firms. And the idea is that if there's kind of one big firm in your area, you basically have to take what, what they give you uh, at work there. Whereas if there are lots of smaller firms, you've got you can shop around a bit more. Uh, and so this chart is showing you one measure of, of that, the uh, labour market concentration. So we can see that um, labour markets got more concentrated, so more dominated by big employers um, in the run-up to the financial crisis, but that that has fallen back since, and now it's, a, it's around the same level as in the late 1990s. And it's worth saying this is just one proxy for the power that firms have uh, to set wages. Um, there are other measures that suggest that employer power might have been rising, but essentially, you know, either either it's got worse or it stayed the same. So basically what we've got is falling worker power and employer power that is high and perhaps rising. So why does this matter? Firstly, the level of wages. Uh, so here we draw on research um, uh, by academics um, and we basically, um, essentially, um, if workers if if employers have power over their workers they'll be able to mark down workers wages relative to what they'd be able to get if if um if the balance of power was more equal and the best estimates suggest that um that markdown could be anywhere between 15 and 25 percent and even if we take the lower bound of that 15 percent uh markdown that's implies a loss of just under 100 pounds a week for the average earner. so this is you know this is a really big deal and there's clearly a lot to play for um, but the other reason why this matters is for the distribution of wages. Um, so we we show in the report that um, unions tend to decrease inequality overall because they're really good at kind of equalising wages among their members based on things like uh, skill level or, or region. Um, so as they've declined, inequality has risen, particularly um, on the measure shown at the top here, which is the ratio between the 90th percentile and, and the median. Um, so that has clearly kind of risen as uh, collective bargaining declined, particularly through the 80s and 90s. Um, further down the distribution, when we compare the very lowest earners to the median, um, the picture is, is better, uh, largely because of the minimum wage. So when um, you can see that the ratio of the 10th percentile to the 50th percentile was, was increasing basically up until the minimum wage was introduced um, at the end of the 1990s, um, at which point the minimum wage started to reduce um, inequality uh, among the very lowest earners. But clearly for the rest of the distribution, there's further to go. Um, so this is clearly a really important issue 
important for the level of wages, especially as we're kind of heading into a cost of living crisis, um, and also um, important for inequality. You know, people say that a tight labour market is the way to deliver wages, and sure, it's it's important and it's helpful, but it's clear that the balance of power between workers and employers mean that workers aren't getting um, as much as they could. So it's definitely a really important issue for us to be thinking about um, over the next decade as we think about our economic strategy. Great. Thank you very much, Hannah. Great stuff. There you go. The, um, worker power matters even if you're not a Conservative MP. Right. Very good. Steve, okay, over thanks. to you. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. Um, so, thanks for listening. So, it's interesting. So, some time ago, I was an economist. So, I did my PhD on economic effects of When I was a lad. The fields were green. All, almost right back to the, to the whole period that we're covering in this report 40 years ago. So, I published my PhD in 1988, and the title was Trade Unions and Economic Performance. Uh, so, back then, of course, unions had big effects uh, on, on the wages of their members, boosting wages and reducing inequality. Uh, uh, we're in a rather different world um, from that now. Uh, and so I think this report uh, that, uh, that, that's been produced is really important to, to, to show uh, and understand uh, why that's happened and as part of the Economy 2030 inquiry to evaluate uh, where, where, where we've gone uh, and perhaps where we should be going uh, given uh, the errors of some of the ways of damage paths that we've taken, uh, particularly with the role of uh, uh, labour market institutions um, in, in the economy. Um, so the, the report documents these big shifts in the balance of power between, uh, between workers and employers. And I mean big shifts. Uh, these are really big shifts in social science terms. Uh, if you look at the scale of that union decline chart, it's huge. Uh, if, you look, if you look at some of the uh, shifts in the extent of collective bargaining uh, that now take place uh, uh, compared to what took place um, 30 or 40 years ago. These are really big shifts, and they haven't happened to the, to the same scale in, in other countries, uh, which I'll return to a, a little bit at the end. Um, so the big patterns of change are uh, union decline has set in, fairly well known. Uh, uh, so the union sector, if you want to think of a union sector and a non-union sector, the union sector is now much, much smaller um, than it was, was in the past. Uh, and the main driving factor of that has been failure to organise uh, in new, newly set up establishments. Uh, so it isn't about uh, existing firms getting rid of trade unions. It isn't about unionised firms uh, or establishments shutting down more frequently because of bad union effects. It's because of unions not being able to get a foot in the door in the kind of new workplaces uh, that, that have been set up. And actually, it seems to be pretty much since 1980 and continuously, continuously through. It's very hard to organise new establishments uh, in the private sector. Um, and there's various reasons for that. There was a tranche of anti-union legislation that was introduced in the 1980s, which made things very difficult. Uh, but there's more than that as well. Uh, there's shifts in attitudes, I think. Uh, and in particular, uh, management have been able to take over uh, in, in, in many ways uh, as, as the balance of power has shifted. Uh, so that unions can't get a foot in the door. I mean, we know in the US uh, the same kind of patterns, patterns occurred. It's very hard for, for uh, people to even get union representation elections, to even have a vote to get a union uh, in the door, in the sorts of new workplaces that have been set up. And employers have spent lots and lots of money uh, and taken legal advice about means to be able to do that as well. And that's happened here. Uh, it's less well documented here, but it's happened here a lot. Uh, and so it's very difficult um, to, to, to kind of get a foot in the door. 
Um, within the union sector, uh, unions have got weakened as well because bargaining has become very decentralised. So back in the day, <laughs> back in the old days, um, unions used to bargain quite a lot at, at industry level. And uh, importantly, even within industries, that multi-employer bargains would take place, which of course gives you much, much more power to, to negotiate, uh, negotiate higher wages. So pay setting has been decentralised massively. Uh, both in the private sector and the public sector, in the, in the private sector almost entirely down to workplace or firm level. Uh, so, most pay, most, so even where unions exist, they now bargain just with individual, uh, individual managers or individual, individual um, em employers. Uh, so in the private sector, uh, that, that, there's hardly any industry or multiple multi-employer um, pay settlements now. So we know, we know about union decline. What people know a lot less about is the fact that that work, the dimension of worker power has shifted. So flip it, and so it therefore it means very much that management uh, has taken over pay setting in the private sector. In the public sector, uh, there's been sort of government takeover because of the introduction of pay review bodies, and so unions, even when they do collectively bargain in the public sector, uh, are much weaker as well. Uh, the other labour market institution of note actually pulls in the other direction, uh, which is the introduction of the minimum wage. Uh, in, April, in April 1999, which has pulled in the other opposite direction, and that's actually strengthened the position, uh, well, strengthened the wage position of minimum wage workers. Uh, it hasn't really strengthened them at all. Essentially, they have no power, uh, but they have a different form of unilateral pay setting from the state, from the low pay commission uh, set in the minimum wage. Low, low wage workers also have no, no, work, no worker power particularly, uh, but their wages have been propped up uh, by, the, uh, by, the, by the increases in the minimum wage. Okay, so what are the consequences of this? Uh, well, the consequences of, of some of this are that many of those big union effects I spoke about when I did my PhD and have re researched subsequently, even when it went very out of fashion. Uh, it's come back now, thankfully. Um, uh, it's, like, it's like clothes from the 80s. Yeah, well, t tell me about it. <laughs> um, yeah, so the union effects have sort of gone away to a certain extent. Unions do still raise wages uh, where they still exist, but not by as much as they used to. We have some estimates in, in the report saying back in 1983, when, this is when you can do things with comparable data, back in 1983 the union wage differential was about 12%. Uh, so for otherwise identical workers, a union member would get paid 12% more than an otherwise identical non-union member. So that's correcting for characteristics being different uh, there as well. It's, it's basically halved. It's about 6% now. So unions do still raise wages where they exist, but it's about half of what it, half of what it was. I think, although it hasn't been really researched, the other union effects have probably gone away. So unions used to have some impacts on productivity and profits, but I think they've probably gone away by now. But that's an, another open research question. Flip it again. Uh, the, the other way around towards management and employer power. It seems like the monopsony power, the idea that you can pay workers below their marginal product, so you can make profits from paying workers below what they produce, uh, has, is, 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 is certainly present. And um, um, the numbers that Hannah showed is certainly present in the modern labour market, whereas perhaps it was less true 40 years ago again, uh, where unions were able to offset uh, that the extent to which employers can take advantage of monopsony power. Um, that's, that, that, that's there and it may well be rising. And the other side of that is it seems like price markups uh, on marginal cost profit margins have been going up. So it seems like employers have been getting advantages from that. So just to finish in a second, um, what are the bigger consequences that have come, have come about? Well, so while all this has been happening, uh, we've seen inequality rise through the whole period. Inequality is at much higher levels now than it was 40 years ago. 
Uh, there's, a, there's a nuanced set of changes by decade, but the level is much higher now than it was 40 years ago. And in the last 10, 15 years, we've had the real wage stagnation and productivity flatlining uh, that have seemed to have come along. All of this, uh, as we've been seeing, these shifts between the balance of power, uh, shifting the balance of power between, between workers and workers and employers. Um, so I do think this means that labour market institutions matter for economic performance. Uh, in the UK, we've seen different ones pulling in different directions. In other countries, our competitors, who are doing better than us uh, on these dimensions, uh, these, these, these shifts have not occurred to, to the same degree. Certainly, union decline is not set in the same way. Uh, and so other, other unionised economies are actually doing better. Uh, better than um, the UK is, which is quite interesting. I think some of this has been lost in the discussion uh, over the years, uh, and certainly in the policy discussion, and it needs to return. And that's what we will be doing in the, uh, in, the, in the second phase of the Economy 2030 inquiry, when we will look at actual policy implications of this. Very good. Thank you, Steve. Right, Antonio, what's it like actually trying to get anyone to sign up for this stuff? The line's going down. How does it go up? <laughs> Oh, we have many thoughts. Okay. Um, and it's really good to hear people being really clear that the only thing that can balance the coercive power of employers is workers standing together in their unions. And it's fantastic to read that in the newspapers. It's fantastic to hear some of the proof coming out in the type of analysis that we've seen today. But look, we've got to face it. Worker power is historically low in the modern era. There are, of course, there are some places where it's not. Uh, where workers have the power to halt production or hit profits, employers are settling at rates sometimes that you wouldn't believe. Just ask the air traffic controllers or the national grid engineers about this year's pay settlements. Unite have just won a deal for cabin crew. You know, the ones that David Lammy doesn't know what they're arguing about. Um, they got 18%. 18%, 11% now, 4% in November, 3% next March, and £1,200 bonus now. And they got that because they have a strong union. They are prepared to have the argument. They were prepared to go on strike. And they had a fantastic case, having taken a 10% pay cut during the pandemic. Things that David would have found out if he bothered to call the union. But because of the legal situation that makes unions weak, these deals are still the exception. And of course, that isn't how things work in the public sector in 12 years of pay stagnation, where pay for millions is basically set by the Treasury at the budget. Now, you've, you've heard the numbers in Hannah's excellent report, and here's how it plays out in the workplace. Uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit of a story. Think back to the 17th of March, P&O. Was this a story about the runaway power of bad bosses? Yes, it was. The diabolical practice of fire and rehire, yes. But ultimately, what P&O was about was a successful attempt to rid a company of its inconvenient union. And that was worth millions to P&O. Now, you know what happened. It's the 17th of March. P&O Ferry sacked 800 workers, lots of them over Zoom. Uh, those are onboard ships. They're escorted out by handcuffed trained private security guards and they're replaced by workers paid less than the minimum wage employed through agencies. Massive protests, questions in Parliament, fake outrage from ministers, and then silence. You see, the workers were members of the RMT and of Nautilus, 
And over the years, they've negotiated decent pay far above the national minimum wages, which, by the way, is why national minimum wage legislation didn't apply at sea, because it was thought to be irrelevant. They've negotiated decent benefits, adequate time off, proper pensions. And so the company, it was a subsidiary of a multinational that gave 271 million in dividends last year, decided to rid itself of its unions. It ignored all the rules about consultation ahead of collective redundancies. It was imperative for them that the unions had no inkling, couldn't negotiate, couldn't threaten strike. The company didn't want to talk. They wanted it to happen. The accountants precisely calculated the payouts that could be payable if the workers took them to tribunal and the fines that might ensue from the consultation regulations and they put them into their spreadsheet and they also priced in the ritual humiliation of their CEO at the select committee and the company got what it wanted. An agency workforce, mainly not British nationals, paid less than the national minimum wage no pesky unions to push up wages, make demands, make any change. Even if the government legislate to make the national minimum wage apply to seafarers, they say they're going to, I mean, who knows what this government can do right now, the company is still winning because the national minimum wage, 19 grand, and lots of these workers were on 30 plus. That's the reality of worker power in the UK. It's about diabolical treatment of individuals, but it's also about a legal framework that ties up unions in red tape while requiring absolutely nothing equivalent of employers. Think about that P&O example, yeah? The, capped, the, the damages payable to those workers are capped, and there's no scope for punitive damages for what P&O did. We can't encourage other employers not to do the same. They're looking at it and they're copying because P&O are not going to be made to pay. But at the same time, ministers in straightforward, vengeful retaliation for a union daring to do a national rail strike are laying regulations supposedly on Monday night to raise the maximum damages for an unlawful strike. And it's really easy for your strike to be found unlawful. You just need to have two or three names that were wrong in the ballot. The maximum penalty is going to go up to a million pounds on Monday night. It's interesting that P&O employees who were part of the French or the Dutch legal systems were not targeted in the same way. And that points out the answer, doesn't it? As the paper rather coyly, sorry Hannah, says, the nature of the balance between worker and firm power should be a core part of the UK's economic strategy. That's not coy. You think that's not coy? What do you I want? A, what little do you bit, want? a little bit coy. I, I reckon you're saving the full recommendations yeah. for the Big Bang next week. Right, there we go. So here's what we would say. Sorry, I shouldn't hit that. I'm so sorry, everyone. Hitting the microphone. It's good so to here's what we would say, right? If you want a more equal country, workers' rights not just on paper, rising wages, then you need more collective bargaining coverage. I think we're all agreed on that, yeah? And the biggest obstacle to that is our laws. Now, this isn't union special pleading. We have to up our game too. And you bet I have some thoughts on that. And you're welcome to ask me questions about what unions should be doing better. But what we need are rights to represent and to go into workplaces, easier routes to recognition, sector collective bargaining to raise wages across employers, stop the race to the bottom. And by the way, let's start in social care, where we've still got seven in 10 paid less than £10 an hour and an end to the red tape that makes it hard for unions to escalate to strikes when we need to. And alongside that, we need better enforcement. We'll take off those caps on damages that mean an accountant can, pr an accountant can price in 
breaking the law. That's how we rebuild workers' power, because as I said at the start, the only counterweight to the coercive power of the boss is you and your workmates standing together in your union. Let's set unions free to raise some wages. Set unions free, bro. Liam, there you go. I've lost it. Liam, Grant, Liam, that was uh, lots of fun as well as uh, what we were to say. Very good. Right, okay. The, um, so we've covered a lot of uh, uh, ground here, there, including um, uh, the joys of what happened to Piano mm -hmm. in its uh, messy, messy last six months. The, um, so I thought what we would do. Uh, is touch a bit on again just to dig through some of the elements of this and the worker power bit is the bit that gets discussed most but I'd also like to touch on employer power and state power a bit because these things all interact and then let's come back to how much it really matters versus some other things that might matter so like how much do we prioritise this in the end governments and people can only focus on so many things at once where does this sit in the list of hierarchies basically the, um, and then let's go into the future on what actually we're going to uh, what we're going to do about it Okay, so I think the first thing we should do, which we actually we've got a question here, which gets a bit of this, um, which is so on the label, if you bring up a question here, you guys will be able to see it. So it, the discussion right now is happening for two reasons, okay, on worker power. It's nothing to do with these long-term trends that we're encouraging you all to look at today. It's happening because inflation's high and unemployment's low, right? And it's the combination of the two, a tight labor market and then a big row about who pays who is going to pay the price of high inflation, basically, because of the nature of the inflation, i.e. driven by prices from abroad. There's then a row about who gets to, who's, whose living standards fall, basically. That's what's going on. The, um, now, for most of the last 20 years, particularly actually in the US, but to a lesser degree here, people would have said the most important thing for worker power is a tight labour market. Right. That's what everyone, because they weren't looking at lots of other things. They're like, what we need to do is make sure we get full employment and then workers will have power and then it will all be hunky-dory. Um, so to some degree, you know, is it weird to be talking about these long-term trends? Like, you know, we've just got what workers always wanted, which was a tight labour market where they feel like they can strike. That's one of the reasons we're seeing more strikes along with the high inflation. So maybe we should just get on with that, Antonio, rather than like, you know, all this long-term stuff. You've got the tight labour market everyone said they wanted. Workers have got a bit more power as a result. Isn't it all hunky-dory? Well, it's not all hunky-dory, is oh, it? Right. You know, um, we're in a situation where, um, where government is calling on uh, employers and the Bank of England is calling on employers and employees to show wage restraint. And we're risking the threat of a recession in the autumn. Um, I think, you know, you can see the way the tight labour market is playing out. Some of these settlements are a result of that. Look at who Cadbury's employs and why those workers got 17% this morning. Um, this is because of that tight labour market, because of the restrictions uh, on immigration, the inability to find the type of workers that that employer wants elsewhere. And that gives people confidence that they can seek those sort of pay rises. But that doesn't matter if you're not in a union because we can't get in to recruit you because the laws tell us that we are not allowed to enter your workforce, your workplace. It doesn't matter if you are in a union, but the nature of your workforce, decentralised, maybe working from home, multiple school, small locations, mean that actually the ballot thresholds uh, that we'll put in, ballot thresholds that apply to no other facet of our democratic life, that say you have to have certain levels of turnout and certain levels of votes in favour, are completely impossible Let's to remind vote. everyone what we're actually talking about. So you need, you need to win a vote Yep. But it has, but the winning you have to win with at least forty percent of yep. the workforce. That's the, what you mean. Yes, that's right. Um, doesn't doesn't apply to I don't know elections in the Conservative Party. 
public elections, general elections. Right. There aren't any thresholds for turnout. Very good. Okay, the, um, now Steve, here's a version of this, okay, since you keep taking us back to your youth in the 1980s, okay, the, um, which is uh, individuals can have labour market power as well as collectively, right? And in a tight labour market, that's easier. So why isn't that doing what it said on the tin? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think looking back to other periods when the labour market was relatively tight is quite useful. Yep. It's also useful to think actually how tight the labour market actually really is. And one can debate some of that, actually, even with, even with the yeah. current... So it's definitely tight-ish. It, it's tight-ish, yeah. It's, it's certainly, most people. That's why I said relatively tight. Yeah. So it is certainly relatively tight. Uh, but there are certain issues about whether that's relevant or not. They've got uh, individual power. But individual power... Because um, that is a thing for some the, people. The, the episode, let's do the episodes of the past first. Because actually, the idea about individual bargaining power was still less relevant then because there was some degree of collective bargaining power. And actually, this has been true in most places, even in the US, actually, when we have, apart from now, the previous episodes of, 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 um, of tight labour markets still did have some degree of uh, bargaining going on as well, collective bargaining going on, rather yeah. than individual bargaining. So what seems to have happened, I think, is now we are in a situation where the degree of collective bargaining, except in, I mean, there are some places, as Antonio said, uh, where, where there is still bargaining power. Yeah. And we are seeing that I think in some in some of the strike threats and so on right now, but it's only certain places uh, where, where where that's happening. Just on that, to push on that, what it's been so, the, the, so we're definitely going to get more industrial action in the next like nine months, whatever that we've had in the recent past, and all the data on like industrial action is basically like one long decline, basically. Yeah. Uh, we're basically getting it in either the public sector or yeah, okay. the bits that look a lot like the it's public exactly sector. Well, uh, well and, and the places where you... So it's, it's, it's many of the key workers, of course, from the COVID yeah. uh, period, which, of course, is quite important in, in the public sector, and other places where unions are strong. But, you know, the days lost uh, from, from strikes now, it's just tiny compared to, the, compared to the days of the past when we're talking about, and even the potential days lost is going to be tiny compared to what it was... But the comparison to the 70s is, of course, ridiculous. But, yes. back, but, but compared to then, it, the number of days lost, which is the best measure of uh, strike activity, the usual measure of strike activity, is going to be tiny compared to, to, compared to then, even, even, even if all the threatened strikes when Returning to the individual bargaining power, it seems like, and the report is suggestive that outside... So the way that economists think about this is that certain workers who have individual bargaining power, uh, they have some individual bargaining power with their employer. Uh, so the employer needs to pay them something to retain them, otherwise they'll go off and get a job somewhere else. So they have a good outside option. Uh, it seems from the evidence that Hannah's presented that the, that, that outside option, if anything, is falling, uh, so that people have less of an outside, an outside option. And that's also reflected in some of the, some of the other work that's been produced in the Economy 2030 inquiry, about job-to-job -job moves uh, happening much less. Um, than they used to in the past. You know, the idea about the job to job moves would be that if you've got an outside option and your employer isn't paying you something, you'll go. Uh, but that seems to be happening a lot less than it did in the past as well. So the idea that uh, we can have wages growing as fast as inflation now seems a bit crazy because there just isn't yeah. uh, any bargaining power uh, from workers, either from the collective side of things, I mean, some, but from the collective side of things, or from the individual side of things, there's some there as well. I mean, you know, I mean, finance workers seem to be doing quite well. Much of their pay increases they're getting are actually in bonuses, though, uh, which are not in your long run, uh, long run wage. Uh, but they are bonuses. Are you worried, of, are you worried about getting. the bankers not getting consolidated pay increases? 
Uh, not especially. No. Okay, good. I just checked. Um, but, 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 they are, yeah. but, but they are getting bonuses uh, coming through as well, and of course that does contribute. If you look at the if you look at the wage statistics with and without bonuses, they're Massive. rather different. Yeah, yeah. Hannah, what do you think on this individual worker power side of things? Because I think that does get lost slightly in the discussion of we, we just focus on the falling union line, basically. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think individual power could be really important, but kind of a it's declining, and b lower earners have less of it to begin with so in, in the report we kind of we we present some stats on kind of the share of workers um kind of the highest paid workers versus the lowest paid workers who are getting training that they say when you ask them would it be useful somewhere else or if you were to move sectors and as you can probably imagine low earners are much less likely um to get transferable training so essentially you know one of the things that matters for how much you can bargain is kind of your skills and, and if you can kind of market yourself well to another employer um, and it seems like the lowest earners are kind of drawing the short straw you know not getting training that's going to help them go elsewhere so I think one thing so I think in, in an era of British politics that generally this is obviously the very long term so don't get angry with me Antonio but, like, but generally basically hasn't wanted to engage in the issue of um, labour market institutions, the role of the unions outside of like when there's a strike saying we're going to do something bad to stop them happening in future. That's basically the level of the political conversation about uh, largely, at least since the 90s. The, um, the story people have told is, and we don't need to because we're going to do other things that help workers, basically. That it's, when they've wanted to, that's the story they've told. But I think this is the basic point, which is one, you can't just count on the labour market being tight often enough to do that. And then secondly, it doesn't work for low earners, basically. It, like, just, it, won't, it, will work, it will work for high earners because they have got individual market power, um, but it doesn't work for the middle and the bottom in the same way. I think that should be a, a nudge to us on where the complacency came from. Yeah, I think it's worth referring back as well to um, the report we did a few months ago on lived experience where we spoke to people in focus groups about this and, and low earners basically saying, like, yeah, I could, I could quit my job and go elsewhere, but all the other options are equally as bad, essentially. So they have fewer options in that sense as well. Yeah. That's a question here. Gentlemen, go ahead. Uh, yes, hi. Uh, no, no, go on, don't touch it, you're fine. Okay. Um, so, David Dentler Monroe from uh, University of Essex. Uh, so, uh, kind of on this theme of job, job mobility and individual bargaining power, a lot of my economist colleagues are very excited about the fact that there's been a bit of a, a, a resurgence in job to job mobility, mm -hmm. um, both in the US, also, also in the UK. It's increased, it's increased relatively evenly by kind of occupational groups and um, education groups as well. Um, however, so I guess economists get excited because they, I, I think, have the kind of competitive ideal in their mind where you can, you know, in theory, in a perfectly competitive labor market, you can move employers at the drop of a hat and yep. that's right, so things up the wage. But um, I kind of wonder whether there's a tension, in fact, between that individual notion of bargaining and collective bargaining, because if you've got employees moving relatively often, I guess it's a bit harder to um, build collective action. Um, and along the panel's on that. That's a um, great question. That's a very good question. Do you want to take that one? On yes. How do you get people to sign up if they keep switching jobs? Ah, well, the answer to that question is it's really, really hard. One of the biggest, when we did our own work, uh, looking at why young workers weren't joining unions in the private sector, it became rapidly clear that the idea of staying in a job for a period of time um, when something was going wrong uh, wasn't, you, you, you would leave uh, if something was going wrong. In many of the sectors we 
were looking at. And I think this is at the root of some of the difficulty that unions have organising uh, in hospitality, for example, in retail, in some of the highest turnover industries. I think what that suggests is a focus on uh, perhaps people who are slightly further along in their uh, employment career, so not focusing perhaps on people um, until they begin to settle down and thinking about what a strategy would be to offer for people in the latter half of their 20s and in their early 30s um, around, you know, as part of the things that you do as you make the transition to adulthood to children. So have a kid and a union card. Yes, exactly that. Right. I mean, who here got house insurance before their dad told them to do so? They settled down. You didn't have it in your student halls, did you? What? You know, there are a bunch Get of... Get some insurance, people. Yeah. There are, there are a bunch of signal, signals of adulthood and that sort of, this is a job I will be staying in for a period of time signal. That point, if unions can make the ask at that point that is a good point uh, to start talking to people about union membership uh, and of course there's a, a range of reforms that the union movement needs to make to ensure that our offer is properly targeted to the needs and wants of today's workforce so can, can, can i carry on with that one as well cool. so of course those moves are very recent uh, and people have jumped on them because they want to want to look at them up to up small uptick in the job to job moves right the trend has been down. Plus, we've um, all been locked in our but, houses for two years. But, <laughs> so, like, if you didn't move, if you didn't move in the last two years, you're probably moving now. Like, the, the other thing that's interesting, I think, follow, following on from that, is, of course, the key reason why, if you change job and you would become a union member in your new job, the key reason why you would do that would be if if the, if the employer recognises trade unions, and so you go to a unionised workplace. So, of course, that is less likely to be true now. Uh, and and be given given the, yeah. given the whole decline, and so you, the likelihood of moving from a union to a, a union workplace to another union workplace uh, is lower outside the policy. Uh, and so that's that's another form of outside. The so it used to be true. I don't know what's happened to this, but it used to be true. And, and the, some of the academic research used to highlight this that some some non-union employers, it's called the union threat effect. Some non-union employers uh, would deliberately pay the union wage. So the classic examples used to be IBM in the US and Marks and Spencers in Britain. Um, they used to pay the union wage uh, even though they didn't have to, uh, just so that they could not have a union in there. I don't know what's happened to that over time. It'd be really rather interesting, but I suspect that's gone away. Yeah. Uh, and so yeah, another, that would be another look reason. At, look, at, uh, look at the supermarkets. That's exactly what Aldi and Lidl are doing yeah. to stave off the threat of unions. Their headline okay. wage rates are the same as the headline wage rates in unionised companies like yeah. Tesco's and Morrison's. And so Amazon did a bit of that as well. Right? It's, it's true to, to bump, bump up the wages to, to show you're not a minimum wage employer. Right, very good. As well. Now, I want to bring up a poll. Remember, it's on the slide of its hashtag worker power, and I'm going to come back to some of the questions. So the first poll, this is about you as people. All right. So, and be honest here. Right? So what is the one thing that you, the one thing that you would do if you thought you could secure a, to, to try and secure a pay rise, or have done in the recent past, if you're that kind of person. So would you or have you threatened to say you'll leave, either because you got off another job or because you're gonna go looking for one? Have you asked nicely? The, um, have you collectivized? The, um, and, or do you think this is all mad? And of course you haven't asked for it because you'd take what you're given. And that's the world, and suck it out, people, because you're like a cynical human about the world. Okay, have a vote on, well go on. Steve, which of these have you done at LSE? I don't know. See, don't know these. Or if you will make it less socially awkward, maybe at previous employers. <laughs> Which one have you done? I've received outside offers from other positions. Okay, so that's the first one. 
Antoinette, what are you threatening Francis at the TC with? Oh, you don't threaten Francis. Um, <laughs> right, so you're in the bottom one. You, so you take what you're given. Oh, that, no, no, that's no, no, the no. kind of attitude we oh, want. Thank you very much. I work in a unionised organisation. Okay, so you're three. I'm three. Okay, Hannah, this is getting awkward. <laughs> Phrase this very carefully. Have you tried any of these? Um... No, I mean, also before this, I was a civil servant, so I also kind of... What you were given? (laughs) Excellent. I have had a go at saying your leave, but it was a non-credible threat. So it did not go well because I wanted to leave, but didn't. (laughs) This is basically a catastrophe, like low levels of individual motivation as well as power. Right. um, uh, So you all want to vote on um, that. I want to bring us back to um, the discussion a bit. So because... um, Steve is reminding us of the 80s. I think we need to make, to make this hard, we need to be like, what are the lessons from the 80s? It's easy to be like, loads of bad stuff happened, look at the union line going down, everything was bad in the labour market, right? So let's like focus on what are the reasons why some of those trends happened, okay? It wasn't just Margaret Thatcher didn't like unions, although that was a part of it. It wasn't just that. Okay, so what were the things that have improved in the labour market, some of which were associated with changes around that phase, and what are some of the risks for people who don't agree um, with the tone of the report, which is basically there's a problem with the level of worker power. Okay, so let's go back to the 1970s, even worse clothes than Steve had in the 1980s. They um, probably should have legislated against some of them at the time. They, so then people were writing reports saying uh, the reason the British economy is a basket case, okay, is because the labour share, the amount of uh, output that goes to workers in the economy is so high that nobody will invest. Okay, that's what people were writing reports saying in the 1970s. Uh, They said the reason that's happening is because you've got out of control trade unions able to extort government and uh, firms. And Britain's the sick man of Europe because of this. And not just because of the level of unionisation, but the nature of our trade unions, more confrontational, less cooperative than their German collaborators. That's what I'm really, I'm simplifying. But if you were like writing reports in like right-leaning think tanks then, insofar as they existed, that's what they said, right? And that was explicitly the government's objective in the 80s. It was, we've got to get this labour share down a bit, right? And if you look at the pattern of the labour share, what happens is... It does peak in the 70s and then comes down quite sharply in the early 80s. So the plan worked mm-hmm. and then it recovers a bit uh, in, the late 90, in the late 90s, I think, Steve. And then it basically flat since. Okay? Yeah. So the low, low union and worker power is not leading to falling labour share, despite what some people like to say for uh, their own political reasons. It's just changed the level. The level is lower than it was. So if you, if you grow the economy by a pound, workers are getting the same amount of that pound, but they're not. Uh, but, the, but the amount they get is lower than it was in the 70s, but a bit higher than it was in the like low, low levels of worker power in the 80s when we like got rid of the trade unions and had a very loose labour market. The, um, so Steve, Gorman, given that you were writing your PhD then uh, and you paid some attention to people saying we do need to sort this labour market out, there are problems, we've got high unemployment, we've got low levels of investment, what, what, which bits from that change do you want to keep even though you'd like some union members? So I think if you, if you can look at the economic history of this, it's actually worth actually going back a little bit further to the 50s and 60s actually, which was the sort of golden age uh, when everybody was doing well. Yeah. Uh, when you did seem to have inclusive growth. Except for women or ethnic minorities. Yeah, okay, or, okay, no, 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 but, no, but on average, in, yeah. in the sense of growth well, being shared around. Yes, yeah. Uh, and, and inequality not rising. We yeah. had substantive growth in the post-war period and, and inequality falling. Yeah. Uh, sorry, inequality constant, not yeah. falling. And social mobility being constant, actually, as well. So the 70s came about as a real shock. And there was worldwide shocks going on there. Uh, you know, there was the big shocks of the early 70s, which, which 
decimated lots of economies and then forced inflation up. And then you got the kind of wage price spirals going on as yeah. well. So in, in the sense of a balance of power between workers and, 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 and management and what was going on there, uh, people do tend to emphasize uh, many of the work practices that hadn't really evolved from the previous decades. And so then we got in trouble. In, 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 the, in the 70s. And some of that should be laid at the floor of the unions, I think, and some should be laid at the floor of the management in, in those firms. Because, I mean, there's a lot of written about bad managers in the 1970s as well. And so it's both of them interacting to put us in a really bad situation. So then by the time you get to the really big shock of the recession of the early, of the early 80s, uh, when the exchange rate went through the booth, um, then you need to think about, um, about what needs to be done. And what we did was decided to put the blame on trade unions, for sure, a little bit less on management. And there clearly were things that needed to be sorted out. There was lots of ex-inefficiencies in firms uh, in the 70s and 80s that did need to be sorted out. And so there was a shock effect by doing stuff. Part of that was to, uh, to uh, think about, about uh, the way that unions were operating. Part of that was to think about much more broadly about other forms of deregulation and so on. And we did get productivity boosts from that. We got a one-off productivity boost from that in the 80s, which persisted on into the 90s. And then subsequently, uh, things haven't gone so well. And uh, we've got back off-trend compa compared to our competitors from that one-off change. So it did need to be a cleaning out of some sort, which did occur. Uh, and many people like to put that boost down to the, uh, to the, um, to the uh, impact of the trade union, uh, the, the, the kind of, you know, war against trade unions in the 1980s. I'm not so sure that's the only driver. It, it, it had an impact, it had a one-off impact. There was other reasons to get rid of those excellent efficiencies that were in the first place, not to do with unions being in the workplaces. Okay, let's bring up the results of the poll and see what everyone has been doing with their employers. What have you all been doing? The okay, so the, um, okay, this, honestly, guys, this means you all work in the public sector. There's no way that is true for the economy as a whole. Not that I'm not like, in, this is a very democratic exercise, right? So I'm taking your word for it, but I'm telling you that is not happening in the private sector. What's the low earners in the private sector? What, 10% unionised now? Yes, yeah, something down like to, that. Like, that hasn't fallen recently. It's just like very low and has mm. been since the 90s. The, um, okay, well, th uh, that is interesting. Right? So overall, the literature nowadays basically says, maybe asking is just like such a nice thing that everyone's had a go at it a bit. Um, the, um, but broadly in our labour market, for middle and higher earners, so forget the bottom third broadly, but for middle and higher earners, the leaving bit, I mean, this does fit maybe with the pattern that people aren't leaving their jobs as often anymore. They, um, all I'm saying is, guys, the first one is by far the most effective in the short term in the labour market as it actually uh, stands. Obviously, in the medium term, the third one is quite, uh, uh, makes a lot of difference. But the, um, okay, that is very interesting. Is that what you're expecting, Hannah? Um, Can you actually see it? I, I can't see it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think um, I probably would also expect that if this was a slightly different audience than the kind of collectivisation world below and what we've shown in the report but um, I guess that reflects the um, the makeup of the audience but yeah. um, Do we think this is true? Twelve, only 12 of you are taking what you're given Guys, guys we're almost all taking what we're given like that, that, that does not reflect what our actual work of the labour basically most people are actually having their wage given to them either by the state as Steve pointed out earlier by the, by the minimum wage or basically by some like weird committee they've never heard of inside their organisation that exists somewhere else like entirely that they never get to hear about. So I think we need to. Look, I think we all need to look ourselves a bit in. The, you know, we need to think seriously, guys. I think you're all taking what you're given. But anyway, right. So, so the collectivised one is quite interesting because Hi. if you if you actually look at some surveys, they um, when people ask questions in surveys, if there was a union in your workplace, would you become a union member? Yeah. Quite a lot of people say yes. 
even if they're non-union members, uh, which is typically put through as kind of frustrated demand for union membership. Uh, oh, and so, and so, you know, that number might not be so out of line. Even, uh, even if density is 23%, that might not be so out of line. Absolutely the case. Um, so we run the union joining tool for the movement. Yeah. If you want to join a union, you Google join a union, you come to our website and we find the right union for you. 800% increase in people completing that tool the week of the RMT strikes. Yeah. You look at the public polling on um, support for the strikes, YouGov have a really interesting time series. Headline numbers, a little bit of movement towards us, but look at the age splits. We're losing, losing, losing. Retired, who cares? Um, but the working age people, we are beating them in the first two cohorts of ages and we are neck and neck with the 50 to 65s in terms of support for people going on strikes. Anybody who thinks attitudes to unions haven't changed, yep. anybody who thinks, and possibly just over the road, uh, that it is 1994-1997 and it's really important that we're tough on unions, they haven't looked at what is going on with the British public and with the economics of now. And these questions have been true for quite a long time. So, I mean, I mean, it's not surprising that employers know that the key thing is not to recognise unions in the workplace. And that's what drives down union membership amongst individuals. I mean, on the, on the attitudinal stuff, so we, we, did, we, haven't, we haven't not redone it recently, but the, the polling we have done on this and folks groups is pretty clear that basically you've got a cohort effect of people who, for whom the 1980s was a big thing, mm -hmm. have much more negative attitudes towards trainees and basically the youth, the youth doesn't have the negative attitude at all. I'd say in our folks groups, they are more if they're in the private sector they're more just like i don't know what this is yes like, which i think your group is what your research yeah is. they're basically like, i have no idea what this is yeah well we, we had what well, i met one group will always they were meeting we did a group in leeds this is quite a few years back discussing this with a group of low low and middle earning workers right so like above the minimum wage um they mainly so they could vaguely if you talk to them about a trade union there was a handful from if they were married to someone or with somebody from the public sector and a good friend they kind of got it if they were in the private sector, they thought it was a bit weird if you were talking about firm level bargaining. They'd be like, does that mean that useless Jim, like who works next to me, gets the same pay rise as me? And we're like, to a degree, but you know, not necessarily. And then they, they thought it was mad when we discussed the possibility of sectoral or within. They were, they were like, they were like, you, they, were, they just didn't know what we were saying. Yeah. Um, and there is like. It's a long way back, basically. <laughs> Like the communications challenge is one of the really significant challenges yeah. that unions have. Um, but we have had a couple of weeks with some great new voices in the media talking about um, why unions are important, the job that unions have done. Mick Lynch has been an incredible ambassador for the movement and I, you know, um, over the past couple of weeks. Um, and certainly unions need to get smarter about what our offer is. And I don't think that we have bottomed that one out. But, I mean, we're really clear. Yes, we want uh, legislation on individual employment rights, but the thing that I want in the first 100 days and the thing that we want in the first 100 days of a new Labour government is collective rights, starting with the freedoms that I talked about and the introduction of sector collective, collective bargaining, bargaining. Let's start with social care, which is the Wild West, where we can root out some terrible employers and take it from there. We still have the Agricultural Wages Board until really quite recently, and people understood why it was important that the range of agricultural seasonal work, wage rates were pegged to avoid exactly those types of... So you're not going to get the first 100 days of a Labour government, you're going to get the first 100 days of 
Liz Truss or Nadim Zahawi. Mm -hmm. So they're probably not going to do that. I don't know. I'm just putting it out there. So yeah, what no. should they do? Uh, I don't Someone's asked a question here about where's the employment bill. Are you going to get one? Well, let's see uh, what the personnel is, the new cabinet. <laughs> Um, there were some there were some clear blockers who just didn't want to move on it, yeah. despite significant promises over a period of time and significant champions. And if the right people slot into the right jobs, you never know. We could be back on for next see. year, and looking hard for those thirty Tory votes that will help us ban zero hours contracts. And I'll enlist this room okay. in that campaign when the time comes. Uh, very good. Right. Okay. Let's go on to employer power. Okay. Because Hannah, why don't you? So everyone focuses quite a lot on in the UK. Yeah, we, we, we basically do largely focus on uh, worker power. The economics world, particularly in the US, has like wandered off into focusing now almost entirely on the employer power side of things. So there's a question here from Holly, which is kind of a this. It's not but generally, Hannah, just give us the, the wider view of what the, where the world, why is the world of economics research focused more on employer power over the last 10 years? Yes, I, mean, I think often we do think about kind of just worker power from one side, of the one side of the coin, but I think you know what we're really interested in here is is the balance of power, and it's it's kind of you know, it's an under-researched area partly because the you know data is really hard to kind of get anything useful out of, partly because you know methods are quite complicated. But so now we're starting to see a real resurgence, kind of globally, um, looking at the power that firms have across a range of different kind of ways of measuring it, um, and I think it's really interesting um, to look at kind of some of the estimates, you know, of, of how much just things like really straightforwardly like firm concentrations of what I was saying before um, in terms of like how, you know, whether your local labour market in, in the sector that you're working in is dominated by one big employer, just that can have kind of quite substantial effects um, on wages. But also it's kind of, um, there's there's more and more research looking at the interplay of, of firm and worker power. So papers both here and um, in Scandinavia have shown that um, if you essentially, if, if you how if you're a member of a union or if your your pay is set um, by union bargaining or collective bargaining, that can temper the effects of um, an employer's um, power in the local labour market. So it's really kind of, I think it's really great that there's this resurgence and interest in the firm side because it's clearly it's it's you know it's all interlinked um, and it's it's really good to be focusing on on the interplay of workers and firms and, and how that power is balancing out between them. Uh, one, thing, one thing you can, like, a lot of what's going on, so the chart you showed earlier about a slight rise in concentration at the local level and then a fall rule recently, a lot of what's happening is that the tools used for looking at product market power, so like people have been talking about monopoly power, right, for like hundreds of years, 850 years-ish, um, where measures of product market concentration, i.e. like I, I produce 80% of the like copper and so if you want some copper you're going to have to buy it from me and I'm going to set the price basically those have basically just been applied to the labour market and it's a bit weird I mean Steve people did always used to talk about it but it wasn't a dominant part was it of the labour market discussion no I mean I mean the usual measure of, of that is you have your price, the market for price over marginal costs yeah so the product market power literature always tended to look at firm concentration or firm market shares yeah. as being able to push the prices up. Exactly. And so therefore profit margins, price margin, marginal cost markups. Of course the wage is a marginal cost, so it's the other side of it. And so if you have employer power, that's to do with the marginal cost side perhaps going down, in which case profit margins can still go up even without product market power because of employer yeah. power. Okay, let's definitely not start drawing charts. We're going to like, like and um, see some, there's a falling asleep at the back. 
They're, right, we're not going to give you lecture on marginal cost, I promise. They're, although they are available if you want to uh, come and ask us questions afterwards. Right, let's do state power, okay? Because I think it is remarkable. So the minimum wage is just like a massive example of state power. So in general, we built a labour market. We said we've got too much collective power in the 80s. We want rid of it. We got rid of it to a significant degree. We then said slightly relatedly, but not actually driven by the same forces, we don't love some of the outcomes at the bottom, right? And we don't believe that the market's going to deliver the outcomes right at the bottom. So that was in the 1980s. This was like a big campaign on poverty pay. You know, people were saying like pound an hour was in the newspapers if you pick up the legacy newspapers of the 1990s. Um, and the minimum wage was the answer to that. So it was like, we're going we're gonna to like just, reg we're going to regulate that stuff out of the labour market and the state's going to not give people power, but it's going to give people outcomes, right? Now, historically, so here's the question I was going to bring up here, which is historically, there is actually a tension between collective worker power and state power. So if you go back to the 70s, the trade union movement basically opposed minimum wages. The reason they opposed minimum wages is because they thought if the state started doing this stuff, then the trade unions wouldn't. Um, uh, so here's the question from Anonymous, which I hope we're going to bring up on the screen for you, which is, has it actually been, and this is basically a question that could be phrased in the framing of the 70s, which is, is the minimum wage a problem for the trade union movement, basically? But I think from what you were saying, I mean, obviously the trade union movement nowadays supports minimum wages because they're not idiots, mm -hmm. right? But um, is, is, is our lesson, unions are more useful, are less use right at the bottom of the labour market with fast churn, quite hard to unionise problems, where you've got to have minimum standards set by the government, but then unions historically have had more to offer middle and slightly higher earners. Not the very top, because they're not interested, but middle and higher earners. And so we want collective and you want state action and they're not in competition anymore. What do you reckon? So I think this was the big insight. If you come to me on the question about what was good about the 80s, what I was yeah. going to say oh, is the accommodation... No, no, no. It's the accommodation uh, that unions came to between the balance of collective and individual rights, where okay. actually we seek a mix of both. Um, and the move towards support for the national minimum wage is one of those. The advocacy the union movement has done over the last 10 years on the insecure work at the bottom is, and the change into support for the European Union were all factors in... Uh, all show how unions began to support more individual rights. Look, the thing that we like about the national minimum wage over and above the impact on poverty pay at the bottom of the labour market is the fact that it's set through a social partnership. Um, there Ish. are unions... Ish. There are unions on the low pay commission, there are employers and there's government. That is a mechanism that is worth preserving. And yes, the government sets the mandate yeah. for the national minimum wage, which we support. I think we should, we think we should move uh, upwards from 66% when hopefully that is achieved of medium wages in the next year or so uh, towards a more ambitious target. Um, but the impact of rising minimum wages on union organisation, look, we represent people in, in the low to middle end for the most part. There has been a squeeze on differentials. If we think that rising wages throughout the economy is important, then we can't just continue to rely on the national minimum wage as the sum total of our wages policy. And that's where all the arguments that we've been having today about the need for greater collectivisation and sector collective bargaining come in. Yeah, the, presence of, the presence of a union wage differential, yeah. which back in 1983, in our estimates, it was 12%, means, of course, that no, no, no union members are minimum wage workers because, exactly. uh, so they have to be higher up. The well, and the sector they were in, and like it's also true about, about, around that average of twelve percent. Actually, unions pull wages up by more at the bottom end of the distribution than they do. They don't do anything really at the top, and so the, the, the wage differential is bigger down in the second decile. 
of the wage distribution, twenty yeah, percent probably. Yeah. And so, of course, therefore, no, no, no minimum, no, no, hardly anybody who's a minimum wage worker is a union member because if they were, well, if they were clever, also covered by collective bargaining, they would receive a union wage premium, and the union wage premium would have to be a markup on the minimum wage. Yeah. And so we went. So that's not the minimum. It's also true in other countries that was true. In, in Germany, the unions massively opposed the introduction of minimum yep. wage for a long, long time until the minimum wage came in in 2016. And uh, they're, they're very pro Yeah, it's not uh, just us that we're in. No, no, so it's, 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 that's, a, that's a systematic thing. Okay, great. Now, I want to touch on quickly on why all this matters. Because I think if you were a casual reader of the report, you'd be like, yes, 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 unions have got less important. Uh, maybe I think that's like suboptimal. Uh, but, you know, in the grand scale of things, I've got other things to worry about, like my hair and um, oh, inflation more likely this year. And so, and then I'd be reading along, and then suddenly I get to the bit that says, and this is suppressing wages by £100 a week. And I'd be like, what the? Like, that is a lot of money, okay? It's a lot. So I think it is worth us dwelling on what is sitting behind that rather, like, bald finding and what we're really saying, which is, bluntly, the labour market isn't a competitive labour market. There is a lot to negotiate over, right? There's, a, you can, there's, there's lots of different equilibrium that could be how we split wages and profits broadly. Um, uh, and that the, because the balance of power is the way it is in levels terms, um, the effect is really quite substantial. And I think if people took one thing away from this, I think it should be, we're not telling you what the answer is today, because as Steve said, we've got to do some more, um, a lot more work on this in the area, but we definitely should be pushing ourselves harder on. If there's that much to play for, what's the answer? What's the best way of coming at that pie? But, but were you surprised? Or you were like, yeah, of course it's £100 a week. I definitely was surprised. Um, I mean, it's worth saying these, these estimates are quite uncertain. We draw on kind of uh, academic work for, yep. for that 15% figure, um, which is based on kind of how quickly um, people leave firms that are not paying them properly. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, if, if, you know, that's the lower bound of estimates as well. So, you know, various papers come up with estimates between 15 and 25%. Um, so, I mean, clearly there's, there's a lot to play for here. Um, and even if it even if it was smaller than 100 pounds a week, even if it was 50 pounds a week, that would still be a lot, and it would still be worth thinking about, like how we can redress some of that balance. Um, and you know, it also worth saying that in this paper, we very much focused on pay and not on wider conditions, and that's also Brilliant. part of yeah. Right, good. Okay, Let, let's do um, uh, the kind of what's what does the future look like a bit okay so what's like what matters in future so first of all we'll bring up a poll which is basically what do you think will matter most for workers in the 2020s so what let's just focus on what do you think which of these would actually make most difference in practice to workers so i think you're going to be in the first one on the fence a bit but you'd like to not on the fence okay so great unionization would help uh historically i think if you took the last 20 years and averaged it most of the kind of labour market economist profession, particularly of those that were like broadly of a progressive bent, would have voted for number two. You've got to get to a tight labour market and stick there. And we kept telling ourselves that would definitely be OK. Probably too much. Um, uh, actual people who don't move jobs that much generally say in focus groups, I just really like, they often say what's in, if people are unhappy with their work, having a rubbish boss is basically like pretty high up the list. They generally say, so sorting that, like concretely sorting out the disastrous management of workplace cultures in some organisations, or four, we've got to get this country raising productivity again because in the end our wages, the reason our wages aren't going up isn't because there's not enough trade unions, it's because productivity isn't rising, so no one's wages are going up basically over the last 15 years. The, um, so which of those do you think is most important? If you're only allowed one, 
So I'm gone. You can rather me answer for you, Anthony. What's your What's your answer? What? Look, I. You can't have all four. And well, how do I not have all four? In greater unionisation, for sure. Uh, historic goal of the trade union movement is full employment. And um, I was revisiting some of my presentations from the pandemic and thinking about quite how much we were worried about the advent of high unemployment. And wrong. thank goodness that is not where we are in this conversation. Okay. Steve, what do you want? You one, one. one number four is obviously most important, but it has to come with the other three. Um, but number four is the most important. But, okay. it, but it have, the gains in productivity have to be shared out. Okay. So, you know, at the moment, as the answer to a previous question, is for, we're not getting much surplus because productivity, How productivity, you productivity growth is pretty poor. So what employers are doing is taking the surplus and then some from workers' wages. Right? And so that's not sharing anything out. That's actually taking, taking more, than, more than the surplus as well. Um, and so you need to raise productivity. But of course, it, has to be, it can't be just raising productivity because it depends how it's shared out. Very good. Hannah? Uh, just to be different, I'm going to go with the third one, not just in terms of, kind mm-hmm. of uh, you know, better, nicer managers, but also in, in those kinds of... You don't need to worry about that, so that's fine. Of course. Um, <laughs> but it also in the sense, you know, workplaces giving workers more training, making the kind of um, better more good jobs available elsewhere so that works have more power individually. Yeah, you'd like some more of that as well. That's a good one. Well, and the hard stuff on that as well. It would be nice to have some anti-racist workplaces where black workers actually got the promotions and the pay that they've worked for on a similar rate, you know? um, That would be desirable, yes. Yes. You should do that. You should do that, people. Right. um, Okay, let's just do briefly... I think we... Let's do some of the hard stuff. So what do we actually... What do people actually want to happen? So here you go. This is a binary choice because life's not fair. Do you want Germany or France in terms of trade unions' role? So do you want collective hand-in-glove with employers, sometimes suppressing wages a bit when the firm thinks it's necessary? Or do you want French-style, it's not really about the trade union having like active memberships, it's more we've got like national-level power via collective bargaining? Are you French or German? I think I'm German, um, although I can see things to recommend in both models. Uh, But I think, you know, we're facing a really significant industrial transition, both to net zero and to artificial intelligence. Um, If we are going to maintain uh, or increase the share going to workers through these big transitions and to avoid the terrible mistakes of the industrial transitions of the 80s, we actually have to sit down and talk to one another. Is that the... So employer's argument is, I would, so if you were a sympathetic employer, they would say, I wouldn't mind having a trade union. Mm-hmm. I just don't want that one. That, I, I mean, I'm paraphrasing slightly, but some boards basically, they're basically saying, if I could have a German trade union, yeah. I'd have one. But if I have to have one that's going to go around and knock on my kids and put out like a protest outside my house or look up my family details, which is, and there is a bit of a movement towards that, to a more aggressive negotiating style. They're like, that's not what I want. What do you reckon? So I reckon uh, there are a range of styles in all of our big unions. (laughs) And uh, if you look at some of the deals that Unite has got about the advent of new technology. No, 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 no. But Unite, big organised in the finance sector, lots of uh, industrial impact of new technology. You know, some of the deals that they are coming to about the introduction of new technology are really, really groundbreaking. And um, the way to avoid the leverage style campaigns is to sit around the table and negotiate. And more bosses should just learn that. 
Like, we sit down, we talk to one another. This is what we teach our kids. You talk to people you disagree with. Uh, you don't just decide that you're going to impose a settlement on people. Now, we know that the skills base of this country is not where it needs to be for the transitions to come. Who is going to make the difference when uh, in the workplace, is it the boss saying, I've noticed you're not very good with figures and you're not very good with technology, I need you to go on that training course? Or is it your mate, the union rep, going, come on, mate, I know you, you didn't get the qualifications. Like, we've got this really good course coming up. The employer's going to give some time off. We're going to put some time towards it. It's run by the unions. It'll get you the skills that you need for the jobs that are going to be available in this workplace in the future. Like, that is the bread and butter work of lots and lots of our union reps. And yeah, it's not worthy of headlines and it's not worthy What's of going on the news, but it is great. And that is how we do better than the 80s when that transition comes. Very good. Right. Now, Steve, why don't you do this one, which is, so people have, obviously, everyone's coming at this through the lens right now of, we're having, we're going to have a dispute because we're going to decide who bears the pain of this inflation, right? And some people's answer to that is, why don't we have automatic indexing of wages to inflation broadly, which is what this person's asking here, which, you know, unions are like, that's what they're trying to exercise power to secure at the individual level, but in the past we have had more automatic indexation, basically, broadly. Um, give us the pros, but you need, um, let's be honest about the cons. I don't think there are many pros. Um, I, I mean, Well, there are after people that don't want their wages to go down today. No, no, but you don't index it because that's just not the right way of well, come on. organising things. I mean, think about the index minimum wage in France. It, it, it works much less well than the low pay commissions setting of the minimum wage here where you where you can take into account what uh, economic conditions are uh, and you can adjust it if need be uh, rather, than it, rather than it being indexed. I mean, it, tying something with, and, and if you get huge changes, then, you know, you have to go with it if it's indexed. So it doesn't seem like a really sensible idea to me. What is it? So like, I wrestle with sometimes, which is you see, we, we have got this really weird debate on inflation right now, right? So we've got one set of people saying no workers, workers should serve some restraint, right? And they shouldn't be asking for pay rises. And it, like the individual, like, like oh. Jenny needs to stop asking for pay rises. That's the problem. And at another extreme, right? You've got a lot of people saying all wages should go up with inflation. That should almost be automatic. Both these positions are not very good ones. How, how do you rest? Okay, 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 so let's go back to the old days again. So in the old days, something that would go into the collective bargaining would be whatever the level of inflation was. Yeah. It would be the retail price index in those days. Yeah. But the idea was that you get a wage gain above, above inflation. Above, above inflation, yeah. The minimum wage has been doing better. That's why minimum wage workers have been doing better on real wages, because the low pay commission has been setting uh, the nominal wage increase above, the, above price inflation. Yep. And so that's the better way of thinking about it, thinking it's some kind of... But what's the danger? I want to get explicit. What's the danger of automatic indexation of all wages? Well, it could go both ways. I mean, I mean with big increases and, and big decreases. Yep. I mean, it could go both ways. And if it's indexed, it has to go. And it, it, okay. I mean, it, it's... Yeah. But, it, I mean, in the end, full indexation is how you get a wage price spiral if it's the whole economy. We're having a row about who, pays this, who bears this pain... Right when it's for when it's not domestically generated inflation, the, um, and so we don't want everybody's wages going up by ten percent this year. The, um, is that fair? I mean, I, I, what I'm noticing is you can say the American left has gone full on like no, the UK left is like quiet, doesn't really know what its position is anymore. Is the TUC's position 
obviously all workers should be negotiating for the best they can get because that's what they should be doing. Yeah. We should be, and that's uh, my position. That's what mm -hmm. everyone should be doing. We should stop being embarrassed about people having a dispute about who shares the pain. Um, but we're not in favour of automatic indexation of all wages. Well, we're not in favour of automatic indexation of all wages because we're in favour of collective bargaining. Exactly. And that enables you to, exactly as Stephen said, take into account the individual nuances of the firm, the enterprise, yep. uh, the circumstances they face. Um, I would like to see further free collective bargaining, I think, in the public sector. I think the, um, there's a real question for the movement over whether the, um, the sort of bureaucratic committee-led approach has actually resulted in better outcomes. I think we would suggest probably not, uh, but it's not for me to speak for unions in that sector. Um, I think we, you know, every worker has the right to ask a pay rise and the TUC will support every campaign okay. for workers doing so. Very good. The, um, right, let's go around you. What's the one? Th I'm going to bring the results of the poll, then I'm going to give you, while that's coming up, the last question is like, what's the one thing you want to uh, happen? The, um, right, okay, basically everyone agrees for raising productivity because, as Steve and Hannah point, uh, Steve pointed out, that is basically the thing that's stopping anyone's wages right now. The, um, but you're allowed to have all four. Uh, guys, we need all four. So if you could do anti racism too. Mm -hmm. So like, we need five, probably. And there's some others, I reckon. Uh, out there. Right, okay, you've had long enough to think, guys. What's the one thing you um, think would make a difference that you concretely like to see in the 2020s? And you have to pick something that is plausible. It could actually happen. Who wants to go first? Life's not fair. Hannah, you're on home turf. <laughs> What's the one thing you want? Just, well, anything. Yeah. Well, not in life, no. <laughs> in this broad space. Um... I mean, I think higher minimum wage. I, yeah, I was, no, right it's a cheating to, to say an employment bill with it's a, a list cheating, of things. Okay, okay, you can have that. All right, okay. Antonia. The Trade Union Act brackets repeal close brackets bill. Okay, you had um, one thing in that. Is it one thing is in it, that? One, which one is it? Um, I think the thing in it is union right of access to all workplaces. Very good. The, um, there are a number of other things in there. I know, but that's your first one. Yeah. And that, and that makes sense given the research is showing very clearly yeah. it's getting into new workplaces that's yeah. the thing that has gone And digital rights of access as well, which is increasingly important for us. The right to email workers who work from home, for example, isn't guaranteed and we're getting it into okay. as many contracts as we can at the moment. Steve, what's your thing? The balance of power needs to be shifted back to what's a more appropriate level, be balance of power between workers and via employers. One thing, uh, via a few things. Um, I, I mean, I mean, skill development is really important here, and that's sort of been thrown by the side. Yeah. There's some bad employers out there, and, this is, and it's them who need the, where the balance needs to be yeah. reshifted. Re who you know, I mean, we've seen training work drop drop through the floor. Uh, and of course, well, it's one of the reasons why productivity is not so good, yep. because the skills of the workforce are absolutely vital to that. And then if you can, if you can boost skills, you can boost productivity, and okay. people can get a share. Right, you've completely broken the rules of the game. Right, excellent. <laughs> the, uh, you like it all. Very good. Okay, look, thank you uh, to our panel for their thoughts today. We will give them a round of applause. The, um, and thank you all for uh, joining us. If you stuck with us while the Prime Minister was busy resigning, you get like so many points. You can come and get a prize from me and I next to you in person. Uh, and everyone's free next Wednesday. We're going to be focusing on the interim report from the Economy 2030 uh, inquiry. You can go on our website and join up for it. Uh, it's imagined to be called Stagnation Nation. You can kind of get where we're going to be going uh, with it. loads of great speakers, including Michael Gove. He might be back as a Secretary of State by then, who knows? But also Rachel Reeves and Francis O'Grady and all kinds of other great people. So come along uh, to that next Wednesday. It's over in the QE2 uh, Centre or you can watch it uh, online. And then, uh, you know, we'll dig into a, this bigger picture of where is the UK economy and where could it plausibly go? Because one day it would be nice to build a better future. Okay, have a good night. Day even. <laughs>
thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.